few more manuals for people, please do that because I'd hate to stick them in my luggage going home. That's heavy. You can carry the weight. Oh, only six sets left or six manuals? All the sets are gone? Okay. Uh, if, if you don't have a set, just use the form and uh, mark that you didn't receive a set and we'll have one in the mail to you uh, first thing. This is Saturday, next week. Um, now, you're asking great questions and we're in trouble uh, because what I'm trying to do is give you a, in two hours an overview of what is going into depth for seven and a half hours on the videos. And uh, so please get the videos. Please go through this in depth and keep, please keep firing your questions. And uh, what, what I'm realizing more and more is that uh, we need to have longer seminars on this. Maybe someday we'll talk Dan into a whole ICBC conference on discovering the real you. I don't think so. <laughs> that was just a momentary dream. Now, um, one, one question was asked that I do. <laughs> what did you discover? Um, one thing was raised that I wanted to mention, and that is um, in making yourself nothing, Pride is so subtle, it will even take that and try to turn that into a point of making yourself nothing. Listen, when you become nothing, we're talking about normalcy. We're talking about accepting life in reality. The line of, rea the line of reality. You are accepting life as it is. And uh, there's another question here that somewhat relates, and that is how do we... How do we apply love your neighbor as yourself in this fight? I'm not talking about not loving yourself. Um, if I can, oh boy. Oh, okay, on your chart. <laughs> Notice what this top line says. The line of improper self-love. I'm talking about the self-absorption of the sin nature. When God gives you a sense of well-being, which we're going to see in this hour how that comes, you will love yourself properly, and that love, that self-love is merely a quiet, non-imposing self-acceptance, a well-being. You're no longer absorbed on yourself. In fact, what's interesting is that what you worship, you become. And the more you worship and absorb yourself in God, the strangest thing happens as a byproduct, the better you feel about yourself. And you weren't working, you were not focused on yourself. The more you focus on yourself to feel good about yourself, the more messed up it gets. When you lose yourself in worship, and, and have you ever been there? Now, I'm not the kind of person that can worship in public. Um... I mean, I, I do on occasion, but I, I'm not the kind of person when people are making a lot of noise and waving their arms, that's fine. I'm not criticizing that, but that distracts me. And so I don't, I don't find myself able to worship in those situations. Let me be driving down the highway alone in my car crying out to God, and I can be swept into worship that I'm, I'm not sure if I'm this planet. And, and I get pretty noisy sometimes the, myself when I'm alone when I'm not distracting someone else. So... Uh, so when you're wor truly worshiping, lost in God, be it in a meeting, be it alone, funny thing happens. You're no longer thinking about yourself. And if you, if you think about it, gee, I feel great. I'm not worried about the fact that I'm not the best-looking person in the world anymore. I'm not worried about the fact that I don't have the greatest personality. I'm not worried about the fact that I don't have the greatest talents. I don't have, I'm, I'm no longer focused on me. I'm focused on God, and there's an awesome sense of well-being. Now, 
Love your neighbor like that. Give them that same sense of well-being from you that you're experiencing within yourself. Cool? It works. All right, now, let <laughs> you're giving me that thousand-yard stare, you know. <laughs> now, I w I'm going to move very quickly because I don't want to shortchange the result, and that is you see on the line of improper self-love, the controlling actions of the flesh. We throw temper tantrums. Little children do what? They are in sandboxes, and if you have two little boys in a sandbox with one truck, what do you have? World War Three. That's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And then comes the great cry for the atomic bomb. You know what it is? Mom! Now, you know what mom means. Come and kill this kid and give me my truck. Now, we say, oh, yeah, those are kids in a sandbox. May, may I tell you something? I don't see anything different from what I just said than what I am hearing between Al Gore and what's the other guy? Um, Bradley and um, McCain and Bush. Exact same stuff, friend. It's the exact same stuff that goes on between labor and management. I want more money for less time. No, I want more, more time for less money. All of it is self-oriented. We do not have a sociological or economic problem in the world. We have a selfish problem, period, end of report. It's a sin problem. And so we throw temper tantrums. Now, how do we do that? Uh, we become very sophisticated at it. And uh, we justify it as adults. And uh, yet we are throwing the same temper tantrums as little kids in a sandbox. We deceive each other. A husband comes home from work. He says to his wife, Honey, I just got a raise and, raise and pay, babe. What, what restaurant do you want to go to? So she names this elaborate, expensive restaurant, and you had in mind the three arches, or the two arches. And, you know, you were going to get her an extra special meal that night at McDonald's. And uh, so now you've got to go spend 75 to 100 bucks on, and, and you're, you're angry the whole evening, and you're not talking. And she says, What's wrong? Do you think you'll tell her that you're a cheapskate? No. Well, I had problems at work. No, you didn't. You're a cheapskate. You wanted to go to McDonald's. We deceive each other on all kinds of levels. We pout. We threaten each other. We have power plays. We manipulate. What are we trying to do? We're trying to be in control. The line of improper self-love. The worst thing that can happen is for the, that to be reinforced. One of the, one of the problems is that we, we have our sin nature reinforced and let me illustrate the danger of reinforcement. Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is the world hero of Saddam Hussein. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know what his motivating factors were, whether he was trying to overcome a bad home or whether he was praised as a boy, but this man had the natural abilities and drive to develop the greatest pagan nation in world history. The worst thing that happened to him was the endless reinforcement of king, you can have anything you want. What is the best thing that ever happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Tell me. Seven years of insanity. What's the best thing that ever happened to your life? A desert. The dark night of your soul. The desertions of God. The harrowing experiences. Why? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? After seven years of insanity, this man who walked on the wall of the palace, what was he saying before his insanity? 
exactly what everyone else has said. Is not this the great Babylon I have built by my power for my glory? And uh, seven years later, he says, God is to be worshipped. We are nothing. He can do anything he wants with any one of us, including me. Listen, what was his humility after his, his insanity? Reality. Prior to his insanity, he was playing God like everyone. Now, I, I, I might have over-illustrated that, and when you il- use that illustration, people are thinking, yeah, sure, I'm no Nebuchadnezzar, the head of a kingdom. It doesn't take that. It takes a wheelbarrow. That's my wheelbarrow, and you haven't returned it. Hi, Nebuchadnezzar. I, I had an Irish setter. My wife and I had an Irish setter one time, and he was a beautiful dog, had long feathers, and and I would go out this road to, to walk and pray. I, I would go two miles out and two miles back, and one day I wanted to spend more time in prayer, and I wanted to go out on a golf course, and so I'm walking along the edge of this property because uh, on the other side was were briars, and you don't take an Irish setter into briars or you have a long evening ahead of you. And so, uh, you know, cleaning his hair. So I'm walking down the edge of this property, and this young wife came storming out of her house. Get off my property! Doesn't she know she's talking to a world-traveled evangelist? (laughs) Boy, did I give her some mouth. Then, a couple of days later, I was getting ready to leave for a crusade. You know what I had to do, don't you? Put my tail between my legs and go back to her house and knock on her door. And she came to the door all nervous, hands sweating, and her husband stood behind her. <laughs> and I said, ma'am, I have to apologize to you. I didn't tell her what I was really thinking. <laughs> you know, you were Nebuchadnezzar, and I was Nebuchadnezzar in return. It wasn't my time to rebuke her. It was my, my time to apologize. But here she was, all huffed because somebody was actually walking on the edge of her property. And I was all huffed because she would dare cross my heart. And Nebuchadnezzar comes up all the time. The best thing God allows and brings into our lives is seven years of insanity that drives us back to reality. That's where God's trying to get us, back to that middle line of reality, the line that leads to the abundant life and the eternal life. Now, what? how does God do that? Life is filled with unfairness. Life is filled with betrayal. Life is filled with injustice. And it is filled with disappointment. If those four things have not happened to you, cheer up, they will. If they've happened to you already, cheer up, they will again. Life is full of that stuff. And what is God doing with these four things in your life? He is bringing you to bad experiences. Now, I'm going to tackle some tough ones this morning because uh, it would be easy to handle the easy ones, but let's tackle some of the tough, bad experiences. People face rejection. Charles Solomon feels that that's one of the most crippling emotions and widespread maladies. I think he's right. It's a widespread malady. Uh, you feel rejected, and you may have been rejected as a child. And those feelings are there, and they are strong. 
And the more you love yourself, the stronger the feelings will be. The more you love yourself improperly, the stronger those feelings will cripple you of rejection. And that's a serious problem. Uh, there's the problem of the broken home. And uh, that uh, home can be broken by death. It can be broken by separation. It can be broken by divorce. By the way, death is as shocking and painful to a child as divorce. They don't understand why their parent betrayed them and died. Uh, I was called to counsel a minister who was 63 years of age. He was the top minister in his, in his denomination. And one day at a little league ball game, he ran up a hillside waving his arms, screaming, I'm going blind. He was not going blind, but he thought he was. He ended up in a room with the, the, the curtains drawn, his feet twitching, his face twitching. In clinical depression, he wouldn't see anyone, and everybody said, my, he must have a demon. Call Ron. <laughs> I don't know the connection there, but I, but I met with him, and we spent three hours talking, and remember, a demon is only a symptom. I think he was being demonically troubled, of course, but that was only the symptom. In the three hours that we talked, and I only had that privilege because we had had a good friendship, one of the things that surfaced was that when he was nine years of age, he stood by his mother's grave watching her body being, her, her casket being lowered into the grave and he was totally devastated and no one reached out to help that nine-year-old boy and he began to run from the fear of that and he ran as hard as he could till he was age 63 and the hounds caught him. And uh, that was a bad experience, a broken home by death that never caught up to him till he was age 63. You'll be dealing with people with all kinds of complications. Let's take a real tough one, incest. What happens in incest? Anytime you counsel an incest victim, without exception, those that I've counseled would begin with this rage. Where was God when it happened? And you've got to tackle that one. And don't come up with fragile answers for God. The fact is, you don't know where he was, and neither do I, but we can put, can put some feet on this thing. God, uh, there's a tough answer and a good answer, a nice answer. The tough answer is this, and be honest with people, give them the tough answer. The fact of the matter is, when Adam sinned, God said, you will what? Die. What is death? Death is not cessation. Death is separation. Separation from God. God maintained his pure, holy, selfless nature. We inherited a selfish, raw, destructive nature. And God warned that death would come, and it came with all of his consequences. And one of the consequences of this horrible sin nature of death that came is that adults will, will attack children to gratify their wicked cravings. God cannot reverse what he warned would happen. He said death would come and it came. And listen, our planet is a planet of living dead people. They think they're alive, but they are dead. We don't have time to go into what death is and all of its ramifications, but we live on a planet of living dead people, and the consequences are here, and God cannot reverse what he told Adam would happen. That's the dark side. The bright side 
And here's the hope that you can bring to an incest victim. The same God that must allow the horrible effects of sin to take place because he warned Adam, Adam sinned, and we were drawn into this mess. That same God reached into a grave by his spirit and drew his, his own son out of the bowels of hell and out of death and raised him to life again. And that same God can and will reach into your horrible nightmare, that prison, that hell that's in you, and raise you up to be unusually used in the right sense of being used. I'm going to jump over all the others because there's just too much, and uh, and I want to make sure we get done this morning. But what I want you to make a note of is this next statement, and share this with people. Badly hurt people can become God's greatest works of grace and most useful instruments. Now, as I told you, I wish we could get a, some kind of a counseling center going in Gettysburg to help us on the East Coast. We have a serious problem. It is hard to know where to send people. I, I love to say, hey, go see Dan, and Dan is so swamped, he's saying, hey, go see Ron, <laughs> go see someone else. Uh, I mean, we are living in a fractured civilization, and the problems are horrendous. But, you know, one of the primary counseling sources I use are people that we or someone else has worked with who got free of terrible things. Illustration, uh, a woman named Sherry, uh, she and her husband came to me for counseling for their marriage. And it was a pretty tough situation. I took them through discovering the real you. They went home, went through the course, and they were doing okay for a few months, and suddenly... She backed a rented truck up to their house, threw some old furniture on, tossed her credit cards on the floor, and said to her husband, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. I don't want to see our sons anymore. I'm out of here. Don't follow me. And she drove away. It was that blunt, that sudden. I'm talking about a man who was a deacon in the church. She was a Sunday school teacher. She was, had been a student at Columbia Bible College. And they were the prime Christian family in that church. She went to Florida. Her husband found, found her in Florida. She's a brilliant woman, already had a job, and he called me. He said, Ron, I don't know what's going on. Every time I call her, she's screaming and cursing at me. And, um, and I said, Bob, you're not hearing her. And I said, I want you to, and th uh, three months went on like this, or maybe four months. And I said, come on down to Gettysburg. Let's pray. He came to Gettysburg. And we went out on the battlefield, and, and this is a vital insight to where we're heading with all of this seminar. I said, Bob, what's the worst sin you committed in Vietnam? Boom, he is bawling like a baby because it was God's time to deal with him. In his blubber and crying, he said, Ron, it's been 25 years. We all were doing it. I did not think it was uh, that bad because we all did it. I knew it was wrong, but I, we were all doing it, and we were all doing it in the heat of war. And by the way, it's not what you're thinking. It's probably somewhat worse than what you're thinking. I'm not free to tell you what it was, but I'm free to tell you the story. Of them. I, in fact, any illustration I use is by permission. I will never use an illustration if the person doesn't give me permission even without using their name. He does not want me to tell you what it was they were doing, but it, it would tear, tear your guts out. And, um, and he's bawling, and I said, Bob, confess it to God. And he did. And in three days, his wife invited him to Florida to meet with her. The number one thing you have to do when, when your life comes into crisis is to find out where you need cleansed on a deeper level. And it was an issue 25 years earlier in his life that robbed him of his position of the head of the home, lost his authority. 
He flew to Florida. He called me terrified. He said, Ron, one minute she's nice. The minute, next minute she's screaming. I'm dealing with all kinds of different things going on here. I said, get her north. I'll be glad to meet with her. She flew north again. Uh, a whole story of how that happened. She ended up in my office. And I went on a three-day counseling marathon because this gal was suicidal. It was critical. And uh, in three days, I watched Jesus Christ literally, supernaturally, take a woman apart and put her back together again. What all was wrong? When she was a child, her mother, who was uh, a free prostitute for the men that would come and sleep overnight, uh, would let them use her as a little girl. Then she was also uh, taken into a satanic ritual by her sister, who today is still a practicing witch. And uh, so she was heavily demonized. On top of that, she had uh, DID. I mean, this guy, gal was one of the most destroyed, fractured humans I've ever sat in front of. And I saw Jesus Christ literally, supernaturally take her apart in three days, put her back together again. End of story, no. Now she's in the lifelong process of healing and mending and growing. All right? Now, i got to tell you that she is one of the many people that I'll send people to. Do you know why? It doesn't always take some brilliant, well-educated doctor of a counselor to help people. I'll tell you, when you send a fractured person to someone like that, almost inevitably, you know how it starts? They don't get out a tablet and with that clear voice say, <clears throat> and now, when did you first start kicking your dog out of the house? And when did you... <laughs> oh, yes, I see. Mm-hmm. No. She'll walk over and put her arms around them and cry. Boy! Therapy just began. She'll reach into their heart and say, I know where you are. Susek doesn't. He's never been there. He knows it up here, but he doesn't know it here. I've been there. I'm coming right in there. Take my hand. I'm going to walk you out. <laughs> you can't replace that with all the training in the world. These people have perceptions I'll never have. They have sensitivities I could never have. They reach into people's hearts and lives, and they not only counsel, they mentor and draw them out. And, and so that's why... Badly damaged people, and if you're one of them, don't drive yourself into the ground saying you were shortchanged. Badly damaged people generally become God's greatest instruments of grace and great, most useful instruments because they've been there and they are powerful in helping other people. One of the first things you have to establish in someone's mind is the difference between reasons and rights. As a counselor, always remember they were not hurt in life. Well, let me say it this way. They have reasons for the way they feel. They have been hurt. When you've been violated by a father, a mother, a brother, or some other violation, someone died and you weren't properly helped through that, whatever, you have reasons to be angry. You have reasons to be full of rage. You have reasons for self-hatred. But you don't have rights. Now, they'll get angry at that point. And here's the illustration that will help them. Jesus had reasons to be an angry, depressed, suicidal, murderous individual. His whole people rejected him, and the religious leaders who should have been loving him tried to assassinate him long before the crucifixion. Jesus had reasons to go to bed at night a nervous wreck and wake up angry. And by the way, when he got angry in the temple, he was not in a rage. That was an act of love. That was an anger against their behavior and a love to them to wake them up. So Jesus was not lost in rage 
raging anger. Jesus laid down all of his abusive reasons. People abused him. He laid down his reasons and rights daily, letting God have the rights to his life, and that kept him free. No one can ever be set free of their inner calamity until they lay down their reasons and rights. God, I don't know why you allow it, but I lay down my reasons and rights to be angry at you, and I trust you for allowing it, and I want you to work with me from here on. They have to understand the difference between reasons and rights and lay them down. You cannot control the good or bad events that enter your life, only your response. You cannot control the good or bad events that enter your life, only your response. Now Amy Carmichael's statement that I put a parenthesis in because of my wife's wisdom. Nothing in life can harm you. My wife had trouble with that, and that forced me to think it through, and so I added this parenthesis. Hurt, yes. Emotional pain is real. But harm means destruction of the life. People can hurt you, but they cannot harm you. The only thing that can harm you is your response. If you respond with anger, rage, bitterness, revenge, that's the thing that destroys your life, not what they did to you. Incest can hurt you. It cannot harm you. And hurt, I'm not minimizing the hurt. It, it can produce disassoci- dissociation. It can produce emotional pain. It can produce a shattered understanding of self and a destroyed understanding of God, all of which needs to be corrected. That's hurt. That is not harm. Harm is the total destruction of the life. Nothing in life can harm you. Hurt you, yes. Harm you, no. Only your response. So a person's response is absolutely critical and essential to life. Now, what I want you to see, and I'm just going to skim over this so that we can get to solution, is down here, the alarm system of the soul. And I'll just mention a couple. We go in depth on the videotape. We have innate knowledge of truth. Let me take, uh, let me take the nervous system. People will come to you and say, I have bad nerves. Almost always they have good nerves trying to do their job. Warning, something's wrong in the soul. And so they go to a doctor, and we no longer live in the day when doctors normally are given to the issues of the soul. They are so busy, they are just giving the quick-fix band-aids of drugs, and, and oh, you have a nervous problem? Here, this will work. Go out and chew on your tongue. And, uh, I mean, that's essentially medicine. And, and forgive me for being a bit harsh at this point, but medicine has reduced itself to becoming a legal form of what gets pushed on, tre- on streets illegally. The vast majority of drugs ought never to be given out even by a doctor. But they are busy, they are harried, and by the way, psychiatry has reduced to that too. If you pay 150 bucks to go to a good psychiatrist today, you will no longer lie on a couch for an hour and talk. You will be there for 15 minutes for an adjustment of your drugs. And uh, so understand that medicine, and, and I'm not condemning or criticizing these people, the flood of trouble is so enormous they, like you, are at the bottom of the cliff trying to quickly respond to all of this stuff, 
And uh, many times our counseling gets reduced a bit, so we need to be careful. And so people will come and say, my nerves are bad. Okay, quick. Uh, what? What? Lithium or what? Not, no, that's a acid. What, what am I thinking of? Uh, Valium or something else. And so go out and stare at a tree. Really is dangerous. Even many Christian clinics are not Christian clinics. We have one near our home that I would never send anyone to. You're not there 30 minutes, but what you're a drug sitting on a corner trying to remember your name and uh, punching a pillow to get the anger out of you rather than dealing with it as we deal with it biblically, which we'll see in a moment. The nervous system, what happens? I remember the little girl in Ohio that was born and her nerves didn't function. Forget her name. Do you realize that a cut in the back of the leg could have killed her? She would have never felt it. She would have never felt the blood dripping. She'd have been dead by morning. Your nerves are there to protect your body with warning signals. You're harmed. Your nerves are there to protect your soul. Warning signals. Something's wrong. Problem's in trouble. We've talked a lot about that. Friends, if you are one of these people, and, and many people coming to you for counseling will be this kind of person, they have a wall around them, and their family knows that wall. Their friends know that wall. You don't talk to them too straight or they will blow up all over you. So dangerous that his wife is planning to leave him with the pastor, some of his elders, and this man. His name was Bill. Convinced me was that he was a man. How did I know that? Because he had his sleeves rolled way up here, so digging into his past, his childhood, pretty rough. Vietnam, pretty rough. And you know, you're proud to walk out of here telling people Ron Susek is a great counselor. And if he doesn't give you the answer, I, uh, with Bill, I said, Are you? And, and so I'm saying to them, I'm not the counselor. What's the worst thing that happened to you in Vietnam? Bam, he's crying. Told me about his best buddy in a gun battle, and his best buddy's head was blown right off his shoulders. Call headquarters and tell him no one important was killed here today. Most important statements you'll ever see in life. The wall you build. The wall of anger, the wall of not letting love through, the, lo the wall of not loving again. The wall you build around your heart to keep out future pain locks in present and past problems. Can you see the handle Satan had here? I mean, a demon had no trouble at all in sighting him in a split second. He was so full of his own locked-in anger and bitterness towards God and that commander and rage, I said, tell me something, Bill. Could God have steered that bullet away from your friend's head? Yep. Did he? Nope. Are you mad at him? He said, it's the first time I've admitted it, but yes, I am. Now, what did Bill have to do to get free of that? If we confess our sins, Bill had to confess the sin of his pride and anger. You know what anger towards God is? It's telling God you're smarter than God. That's real arrogance. God, if you were as smart as I, you would have done it this way, and since you did, I judge you by being angry at you. You are sitting in judgment against God. He had to confess his judgment against God, confess his pride, confess his anger towards his dad, confess his rage, confess his selfism that was motivating all of these responses. Well, we closed the session. We didn't have to deal with a demon. We just closed in prayer and left. I uh, learned from his pastor, and he told me himself, the next Tuesday he went to, to visit his psychiatrist at the um, 
that hospital. Now, psychiatric fees run 150 bucks an hour, or a session, I'm sorry. He had been in therapy weekly for 25 years. Multiply that one. And do you know who paid for it? You did. That hospital. Ten minutes into the session, his psychiatrist leaned forward and said, Bill, what in the world happened to you? I don't need to see you anymore. Last Christmas a year ago, my wife and I went to a Christmas program in York, and I bumped into Bill. He was ecstatic. This is now six, seven years later. He was ecstatic. You know why? He said, Ron, I don't have time to talk to you. I'm rushing home to pack my clothes. I'm going to the mission field full time. Do you think we are playing with kid stuff when we talk about counseling in the gospel? See, everything we've said today is the power of the cross. Not some rare counseling technique. It's the cross. It's the same gospel that Billy Graham preaches on one level in stadiums. You're simply taking the good news of God's power to forgive and cleanse through the cross on the deep entangled world of deeply troubled people. That's what you're doing. You're an evangelist taking the gospel to a deeper level of human pain and need. That's what Christian counseling is. One more story. I have several I'd love to give you, but I can't this morning or I'll get fired. Uh, I, I was in uh, North Dakota, and a fellow said to me, Ron, we have this young guy, he's in his early 30s, and uh, he lives on marijuana, and he, he, he can't work, he's, he, he's, he's on welfare, would you meet with him? So I, I met in a, a, not a truck stop, but a, a, it was a truck terminal where they repaired trucks, a tractor show of trucks, and I'm sitting on a barrel. And when I walked in, there sat John. And I mean, he sat there with his foot twitching and his face twitching, a lot of signs of demonization. His thoughts were not coherent. And for an hour, I drew his story out of him. He had a pretty rough story. His father died when he was five. His mother remarried when he was seven. His stepfather verbally abused him and didn't like him. And uh, he, he didn't feel that he was as smart as his friends. And so he just threw in the towel on life. And so after an hour of talking to him, I said, okay, John, let, let me try to get this straight. Are you telling me now that your father died when you were five, right? Right. Now that, that's painful, John, because I had talked to him about the, the loss of uh, a parent when you're five. Your mother married a man when you were seven who didn't like you and verbally abused you, right? Right. And uh, you don't think you're as smart as your friends, right? Right. Now, please, don't lie to people. I said, John, you're not as smart as your friends. Don't lie to people and think you're going to help them. John is smart enough to do well in life. He's a nice personality, a wonderful guy, but he'll never be a rocket science. So don't play head games with people. After I recounted it, your father died when you were five, your stepfather abused you verbally, and you're not as smart as your friends. So what? And I just sat in silence to let that reverberate in his soul for a while. I said, John, I'm going to be honest with you, because I may never see you again in this lifetime. If you want me to help you, i got to shoot straight. You're a two-buck John. Now, the reason why I can talk to you to this straight is because I'm a two-buck Ron. I have very, very little to offer God, and that's absolutely true. That's not false humility. I know reality. 
I know what God started with when he began. And I know that anything I'm doing today is strictly a creation of God. It has nothing to do with what I was naturally. Or And I threw them at God's throne and said, here it is, you do what you can with it. And you took your two bucks and wrapped yourself up in self-pity, and now you're a leech on society, and come to me for counseling, will you? <laughs> I said, what are you going to do with your two bucks? He said, I want to give it to God. I said, go ahead. And he confessed his sin, his sin of selfishness, that he thought that he could judge God and be angry at God for shortchanging him in life, that he could have the right to hate his stepfather, and he hated him, and hate his mother for marrying the guy, and and be angry at his dad for dying when he needed him. And he had to work through all those, get down to the deep levels of confession. Get down there. Ask God to help you to reveal all that needs to be confessed. What happened? He walked out of the straight eye. The next night, he, I was in a meeting, and he came to the meeting, and he handed me a big note he wrote to me describing everything we talked about and signed it, your friend, Two Buck John. <laughs> Three months later, I was in, in Fargo, North Dakota. I had to be driven to Bismarck. And I was dead tired. I'd been in a pastor's conference, and I was so looking forward to getting into someone's car for the three-hour ride where I could curl up and sleep, and they sent Two Buck John. Now, this guy was so excited, he grabbed my suitcase, threw it in the car. I jumped in. He said, man, Ron, you can't believe what's happened. Ever since the night we prayed, I haven't had one marijuana joint. I've started a business. I now take uh, pallets, those things that they use on trucks, those wooden things. I, I take them. I repair them. I sell them back to the business. I'm, I'm getting a machine. I'm hiring a guy. I work now at a drug center and a halfway house. I'm counseling guys coming out of prison. I'm, I'm counseling guys off of drugs. and off, uh, off. <laughs> It's like he had his finger in a light socket. I'm thinking, oh, Lord, three hours. And it was three hours of this guy exploding with life. When I met him, he couldn't get two words together. He said, Ron, uh, let's talk for lunch. And, and I said, yeah, let's talk for lunch. Now, <laughs> now we're, we're in North Dakota, friends. It's, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. And they have these restaurants, the cross-eyed steer, the lonely cow. Where, where they, they play that heart-wrenching music where people lose everything, you know. My wife ran off with my dog, bonk, bonk. And, and uh, now, now, you know what you get when you play country music backwards? You get your wife back, your truck back, your dog back. And, and so we stopped in this restaurant, I think it was the, the, the Bighorn Steer or something, and uh, he said, what do you want? I said, I've never had a buffalo burger. Hey, oh, good, let's get buffalo burgers. He said, I'm buying, Ron. Now, listen, he didn't have that kind of money, but I knew, don't rob him of it. So I said, okay. So I got a buffalo burger. Friends, this has nothing to do with the story, but I'm just telling you for your own warning. <laughs> that baby was the worst hockey puck I ever ate in my life. It hit my stomach like a bomb, and at 3 in the morning exploded. They tell me I got a bad one. The day I'm ready to die, I'll try it again. <laughs> it's now three years later, and two buck John still has his business. He's still counseling kids off of drugs, off of alcohol. Listen, if we confess our sins, if you get people down to see what it really is, if you get yourself down to see what it really is and learn to confess it on an ongoing basis, God made a commitment. He is faithful and judicially bound to his son's death to not only forgive us, but cleanse, change, 
transform. And that's the supernatural aspect of all the counseling that you're doing as pastors and counselors and just as a friend helping friends. I don't believe it. It's 11 o'clock on the button. And, you know, I'm tempted to talk on, but I'm not going to do that. But what I want you to do is please get these materials. And uh, if you order them, uh, you'll be on our mailing list. And so if uh, any additional things come, you'll be notified of it. Thank you for the privilege of uh, sharing with you. Let's pray and then we're done. Father, seal. Seal these thoughts to our hearts and take these people out of here capable in your spirit now of doing a greater job than ever of setting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people free by the simple gospel of Jesus Christ applied on a deeper, more entangled level. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. We'll put PowerPoint away.